Welcome, everybody. Uh, we're very fortunate today to have Dr. David Martin with us. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia. And David is the Executive Medical Director at Pfizer. And he's going to discuss with us today a paper that I've been very interested in and very keen to discuss with him. It's about biomarkers to predict risk of venous thromboembolism in patients with rheumatoid arthritis receiving tovacitinib or tumor necrosis factors. And it was published in RMD Open, and it was published uh, in July of last year, but it's the only paper I've ever seen which has tried to examine all the usual thrombogenic things that we think about when we have patients with VTE, because I'm desperate to understand, is the issue with JAKs a class effect or a JAK2 inhibition effect? And up until this paper, I had never seen anyone look at the normal things you and I look at every day. Antithrombin-3, factor V laden, protein C, protein S, et cetera, et cetera. So welcome, David, and thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to discuss this important paper with you. Uh, thanks, Peter. It's great to talk to you, and, and thanks for making the time. I'm happy to spend the next few minutes to, to chat about this paper, which really was quite an effort, uh, quite a team effort um, for us to try to make sense of, of uh, the data coming out of the oral surveillance. And I know that you've talked about that large study on, on this podcast before. All right. So let, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you're doing, what your interests are, um, how this particular paper came about, and then we'll set it up and talk about the paper itself. Yeah, sure. So, so I'm a physician and rheumatologist by training. I uh, spent uh, years doing basic immunology research first at the NIH. And then um, after fellowship in San Francisco, moved to Seattle, was at the University of Washington for uh, a number of years, had a, had a small lab, and then moved into industry uh, in 2007. Uh, and since then, so really more than 15 years, I've been involved in bringing medicines to patients, uh, including uh, both small and large molecules, mostly working in the early development space, so phase one and phase two in inflammatory diseases, so rheumatic disease, the derm and GI. And, and, and I, I transitioned to Boston about uh, eight years ago. And for the last uh, seven years or so, I've been, been at Pfizer here in, in Cambridge, uh, working on inflammation immunology research unit. Uh, most of, much of that effort for, for, that, for the last seven years has been focused on the, uh, the Janus kinase of the JAK franchise. And, um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that, but uh, it's exciting times. It is exciting times, but it's fair to say that oral surveillance, where one drug in one disease and the FDA made this broad sweeping class black box for every indication, for every jack, and it, it was enriched for cardiovascular risk factors. It was um, an event-driven trial against the TNFs, Adalimumab, I think, in the US and Atanacept overseas. And it's fair to say that it has changed a practice around the world. What's happened to the JAK market in the US as a result of oral surveillance before we get into the paper? Oh, well, I'll be honest with you, uh, Peter. I, I, so I wasn't involved with, I wasn't involved with oral surveillance um, um, 
from the from the get-go and i can talk more about it but as far as the jack market uh, and, and how it how it's been affected it really is something that i'm not particularly close with and how it's been affected i know it's not been a positive effect uh and yes. there's been, been a lot of questions raised about it it's just the, you know most of my focus and, and I'll, as i'll tell you historically i worked on this from from 2019 for a couple of years but uh, it really has been the center of my uh, focus the past couple of years, but it's certain that that uh, the these results from oral surveillance have have had a significant impact in the way that uh, jack inhibitors are used uh, in the class. Sure. Um, and I think that's so, the key question: so, were, but, were the findings from oral surveillance a class effect or a jack two effect? When you push the dose, you might get more pan jack. Do you think that's a fair statement? Have you put if you push the TOFA dose up towards ten BD? In some people, you get a pan jack effect, not a selective jack effect. Well, it's interesting that the certainly when 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 tofacitinib was was first described, CP six fifty six ninety five fifty, it was it was initially described as a jack three inhibitor. Uh, you go back to some of the earliest papers in uh, early two uh, thousands. Uh, we had had a long standing collaboration with the NIH, Pfizer scientists. Um, and uh, the truth is that what what we didn't know was the importance of of the way you 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 assess jack inhibition, and, and it's taken a number it took a number of years and, and a great deal of work to to really understand that that tofacitinib does uh, affect jack three and uh, jack one to a much greater extent. And then, as you suggested, at higher doses, there is an effect on jack two, and you can certainly see that uh, for the jack two dependence. Uh, pathways, specifically when you look at hematocrits uh, uh, and, and platelet accounts, platelet counts at, at these higher doses. But I think your Excellent. question is spot on, which is to say, is is this is this uh, is this uh, VT signal? Is it a jack two effect, or is it a, is is this something beyond? Because as you know, there's there's many pathways, more than fifty plus pathways that are jack dependent uh, and depend on jack pairs. And jack two is the only Jack isoform, which doesn't depend on either a Jack one or or Tick two. Excellent. So, you know, the, with oral surveillance, a ten milligram dose had a signal. They changed the um, study halfway through and, and continued the lower dose. So, let's talk a little bit about um, this particular paper. What did you try to do with this study? to help us understand the mechanism of action, because that's what I've been asking for, for the companies for years since this paper, uh, since oral surveillance. We need a mechanistic understanding of what's going on to help us decide who's at risk, can we predict, is it the class or is it Jack 2? So what were you trying to do with this paper? Yeah. So as, as you pointed out, the the oral surveillance study um, was uh, a study that was the a um, a post-approval safety study that was that was mandated after tofacitinib was approved in 2012. So the study started in 2014, big study, and um, the the goals the goals and, and primary uh, endpoints uh, in uh, the oral surveillance were were Mason adjudicated Mason and in, in cancers. It was not VTE. It was only after uh, a uh, uh, the data uh, safety monitoring board noted in, in in 2019 that there was a increase in events that um, 
the protocol was changed and uh, the, the higher dose was rolled into the, the five milligram, 10 milligram dose patients were rolled into five. So in terms of what we were doing, it really, as you said, it was a question about, can we use the samples that are collected uh, to, to better understand mechanism uh, for this observed increase in, in VTE? Um, and um, I think that uh, uh, took a lot of work, but we were, we were hamstrung really from the beginning. And, I, and I'll, I'll say that just, in, I mean, if you read the paper carefully, you'll note that we, we, we were able to, we started with uh, um, a, a very limited sparse blood collection. Um, and it was a baseline month 12 and month six is a five-year study. So we had a, it was a huge population of over 4,400 patients. And, um, you know, after the signal came out, we, we reached out to some, some experts in VTE and, and, and so forth. And the first author in this paper is Jeff Weitz, and I uh, owe him a great deal of uh, credit for, for the way we designed the study. But really, we're looking at sort of, you know, how, how can we best get at this question? So Jeff had uh, suggestions about looking at sort of common things being common, looking at things like the D-dimer, looking at C-reactive protein. He thought that that was the sort of the most likely to yield uh, some useful information. And, and that's probably what we're gonna end up talking about most. But we also did uh, a handful of other more exploratory things. And it's, 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 it's quite a complicated thing because we looked at just so many, including um, uh, sort of markers that most people might've heard about, things like TPO, but also other things like factor factor eight and, and, um, and uh, some of the other clotting factors. And then we did more of an exploratory look. We called them tier, tier three and tier four by looking at um, uh, some more proteomic markers using a, a, a technology known as O-Link. A uh, lot of markers, a lot of data, a lot of patients. Uh, and then of course, we, we looked at some of the other things that were more, uh, more well-known as far as risk factors, such as genotyping of uh, the factor five Leiden, and then things like the uh, and prothrombin, and then other things that are known to be associated with autoimmune diseases, such as some of the uh, the known uh, NF-phospholipid antibodies, which are, are associated with with clot. Um, so that yes, that so, was. Go ahead. So, so you had forty three sixty two patients were randomized. You had uh, two hundred eighty five patients, fifty seven VTEs, and two hundred twenty eight match controls, um, and you had a, a look at a whole series of these things. Um, and did you follow them over time, or was it at one time point that you that you did the the comparison between the VTE patients and the con match controls, if you like? And were the match controls inside the study or outside the study? Yeah, these are these are these are good questions. So, so we we looked at um, the um, um, the baseline to see if there were specific markers that might predict the patients who were going to go on and develop CLI. And then we looked at the changes from baseline at month 12, and then again at month 60, to see if any of these uh, nearly 300 markers um, predicted uh, or, or, sh or showed an association with, uh, with VTE. And we broke it down then by, by uh, uh, DBT and, and PE. Um, so, so it was in, in the, in the genotype and we obviously just, just did once at baseline. Um, so, so we did look at changes and that's, that's described in the paper, uh, much more details are, have come out with, 
many other papers have described the oral surveillance study. And there's actually a manuscript that's going to be uh, coming out fairly soon that describes, much like the original manuscript on MACE and malignancies, there's one that's going to be focused uh, specifically on BTE that's going to get into more of the details of the patients themselves. But as far as the, the markers themselves, we had limitations because if you can imagine, if we got a baseline marker in a month 12, if somebody has an event, say at month six or at month 36, the value of a month 12 um, uh, a blood test is limited. We're not going to be able to, to, to know years later, months later, uh, how to interpret uh, something that is um, years away from the event itself. So that was one of the major problems. Normally, when someone comes in, you immediately you can you can associate the blood test with the with the symptoms of, or the signs of the, at the time of their of their of the problems. But we couldn't do that. We were limited because that's the way the study was set up. It was not a, a study specifically set up to look at um, mechanism for for uh, either maize malignancy or BT. So you looked at uh, plenty of markers of, that we usually check or when they've got someone with thrombogenic risk. I wondered about markers of endothelial dysfunction and what you feel the JAK-STAT pathway inhibition might affect endothelial function. And so we'll be looking not so, as long as we cover those markers, is it more likely to be endothelial issue or a marker change, if you know what I mean? Yeah, so... Unfortunately, like, fact, like von Willebrand's factor or something like that, which is a kind of an endothelial dysfunction measure. Yeah, a lot of these markers, as you suggest, like von Willebrand's factors and some of the other factors that we typically think about for being associated with endothelial, they did not, we tested them, we looked at them carefully with a proteomic uh, a platform, but nothing turned up as being associated uh, with, uh, with either the uh, DVT or the PE. And the short okay. answer is that it was disappointing in that way, even though we looked hard and we spent a lot of energy looking at and developing uh, uh, this, these assays, it, nothing really bore fruits that was statistically notable. As I said, in part because of the way that the study was set up and as well by the fact that there were actually surprisingly few events, uh, even yes. though roughly 50, but that's, uh, they were over time, so so we looked at month, you know, I said my baseline month twelve and month sixty. If for for patients who had events early, we called them early before month twelve. Um, we were limited in in in, in making the, some of the comparisons, uh, say for the month, uh, using the month twelve data to look beyond that. And if we look at the baseline demographics, of only one percent or so had a history of VTE. Were they the ones who had events? There was. 3% on an oral contraceptive, did that make any difference? 14% well, was, yeah, was, was on aspirin, was aspirin protective. Yeah, I, I think I think that the, the, the manuscript that's going to be coming out actually does very clearly point to the history of VTE as being a major risk factor. I mean, this seems obvious that if you've had a prior VTE, you're at increased risk. And in fact, I think that those those data confirm that 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 is the case. That history of BT, oral contraceptive. I don't think oral contraceptives are as striking as the history of BTE. And the other one that really stood out was was smoking, um, and that that also came out when um, 
when uh, the new labels came out that the history present or past of smoking clearly was associated with an increased risk of, of events. Okay. Anything else that stood out as either protective, like perhaps aspirin, or um, a risk factor that we should be aware of? Well, Mind you, aspirin only protects arterial, not venous, so you wouldn't expect it to make a big difference. No, I, I, I do think that within our study, the short answer is, with the, with the, with the biomarker study, the short answer is nothing really stood out. It was frankly, was a bit disappointing as far as what we did see. And I, I'm happy to talk more about the D-dimer because I think that's probably the most interesting result. But as far as the things that I think people are going to take away from the entire experience with regards to VTE, is, is it relates to disease activity itself, right? And so like, while we were doing the study, there's a, a, a Swedish group came out with some really nice work that, that clearly demonstrated that um, patients who have active disease are more likely to have clot. And, and, and ultimately that, um, I think that's gonna sort of be the message here, that if patients still have active disease, you need to be concerned about the possibility of developing a clot. Um, and there's additional work, I think, from the same group that are looking more specifically at different subclasses of medications, including JAK inhibitors, TNFs, IL-6, et cetera. But I don't think as far as the, and, and, and one last thing is, is obesity. BMI really did stand out as another, seemingly another. But again, this is an obvious, we, we already know that obesity probably contributes to the VT risk. We'll talk about the dimer shortly. You, you did compare... Uh, the jack against the TNFs. Was there any anything that was helpful from your study from the TNF side or the TOFA side? Any differences in that comparison? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Both medications clearly work as far as um, reducing systemic inflammation as measured as measured by C-reactive protein CRP. We know that, and that. Certainly came through when you look at uh, when you look at the data um, uh, as, as we presented in, in, in the paper that, that the, the controls specifically went down. Uh, the cases also clearly went down. Um, what was you know as we'll get to with the D dimer, um, the the they they both also the controls also uh, for both the the uh, topocytinib and, and the TNF inhibitors again. D-dimer is a marker of, of, of um, it's, a, it's a poor man's marker of, of systemic inflammation. At least that's the way I view it. Uh, and they both went down. Uh, but but as far as the differences between TOFA and the TNFs, I don't think anything really stood out. But, you know, if you look carefully through the supplemental data, there was an interesting finding, like there was a, one of the markers of TNF receptor was clearly affected by a TNF, as you would have expected. But nothing really stood out amongst the 276 exploratory markers that stood that, that separated the topocytinib treatments versus the TNF. So, so tell us about the D-dimer results, because I always assumed the D-dimer was um, a marker that goes up when a clot is present. Um, it might be an acute phase. It might go up with inflammation, but I thought the D-dimer tells you there's a clot present, go and find it. So tell yeah. us about D-dimer. Yeah, this is was, this was what I was taught. I mean, for me, D-dimer is something you use to when someone shows up to a, to the emergency room with the potential uh, for for having a, a clot or a PE. If it's negative, it's 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 good for ruling out patients. Um, but in terms of 
it being positive, how, how can we use that information? And there's been a lot of work more recently looking at patients more in more of an acute setting. So hospitalized in an ICU, can you use the, the value to, to guide treatment decisions around use of, of anticoagulation, et cetera? Um, what we discovered um, in this is, is that, so first of all, if you look at, at, at I think it's table three in the paper, that um, across all the controls, uh, it's a coin flip. Half the patients have at baseline um, uh, D-dimer levels that are greater than two times the upper limits of normal, um, which uh, to, to me isn't so surprising. It's a, like I said, it's a marker of inflammation. These patients were active to, uh, to come in. Um, and if you look at the cases compared to that, the, the numbers were, were slightly elevated. So it was roughly two thirds of uh, the cases across the uh, across all the treatment groups. And then over time, if you look at the D-dimer, uh, those numbers go down. So in other words, the number of patients who have a greater than two times the upper limit small drop from 50% to like 25 or 30% in the controls. Now in the cases, and this is again, probably the most interesting result, but it, it's actually in my mind, not that interesting in that we had so few, we had few cases, they didn't seem to drop by the same token. So, for example, uh, in the in the high dose group, there were I think roughly half were still, or even more than half, eleven out of nineteen. I don't like using percentage for such small numbers. Um, were still elevated, greater than two times the upper limit normal. And in the low dose group, I think all of the cases, but there were only six. So that's part of the problem is that there were so few cases by the time we get to month twelve, and we we excluded cases for, for when patients were anticoagulated. Where we, we didn't include them for the measurements of the D-dimer. So that was one of the problems is that over time, as these cases dropped out, we had fewer and smaller numbers to be able to look at. But I think that, you know, raises the question, can we use the D-dimer uh, as we're thinking about um, following patients with uh, and putting patients on a jack inverter? Right? I, I, I certainly hope that people don't come away from this paper and think, huh, I should check a D-dimer on my patient. They're not responding. The problem is that uh, D-dimers go up under uh, many different circumstances, including obviously rheumatoid arthritis. So I would. So that's, I a very important, that's a very important point that people should not think measuring a D-dimer will be diagnostically helpful, because it's an acute phase reactor that goes up like CRP does. That's right, and 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 as 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 we as we learned in in in, in back in medical school, that you really need to spend time talking to the patient, examining the patients, that if they're telling you that they're still having pain and swelling, um, you know, that's important. And measuring their, their tender and swollen joints is important so that you know if they're not yet in remission, and we obviously want to treat the target, uh, they're still active, then that should tell you about uh, continuing to, um, to be aggressive with, with the treatments. Yeah, it'd be lovely to know if <clears throat> there's a level of disease activity that drives risk much higher than any possible jack risk but I'm not sure that's possible to be done. But that table two is very helpful. So CRP didn't associate with VT events in either arm. The D-dimer went up and down. Tell us a little about the TPO, because yeah, apparently that there was a yeah, greater risk of subsequent VTE. Yeah, T TPO is an interesting one, and, and platelets themselves. So so, so I know that, um, I mean, the, the VTE story um, that many of us, have heard over the last say five years with as relates to Jacks really came about 
uh, as Barry Stittner, uh went to this advisory committee, in, I think it was 2018, and the FDA was particularly concerned because there were a number of cases of VTE in that program's development, particularly at the higher dose. And at the time, the FDA was very much focused on a mechanism that tied to um, JAK2 and platelets, which, of course, JAK2 is um, signaling downstream from TPO. Um, and, and so we looked carefully, let me just, before I answer your question, the, the, the TPO story. So, so we look carefully at platelets and the, the, the platelet counts actually, if we go back and you look at the, at the very sitting, and yes, there was a small bump in patients, um, particularly at the higher dose, but they really weren't um, platelet counts that you think, oh, this puts you at higher risk for developing clots. So as far as I'm concerned, even though the FDA had raised concerns, they didn't approve the four milligram dose. I think the story around mechanism for JAK2 and, and platelets was really uh, not answered. Not to my I'm with you because the, the rise in platelets was so minor. Yeah. We're, like we're used to um, those patients with myeloproliferative diseases. They don't start getting serious issues till the platelet counts way up. That's Six, right. 600, 800, a million. These patients never went, you know, you start off high when you got active RA and it really didn't go into the stratosphere to explain any change. So I, I agree entirely. So TPO is interesting. Um, I'm not sure how a platelet count would explain risk like you were saying. But if we go down that, the tier, the tier twos, factor eight didn't seem to have anything, protein C didn't. Um, you've got some proteomic assays. You found a couple of markers. One is a TNF marker. The other is ANG, which I don't know anything about. What's ANG? Yeah, I think it's angio. I want to say angiogenin. It was again. It was. It was when we looked carefully at some of these um, uh, rarer biomarkers. Again, really quite exploratory. It didn't. The changes that we saw didn't. Number one, they were either not dose dependent, or they weren't consistent with um, the uh, the um, the changes that we saw as far as the the BTE and and the, the story around Angen just didn't hold together, even though it met statistical criteria. And to be frank, the statistical criteria for such a complicated uh, a setup was quite uh, it really did depend, it depended heavily on the statisticians involved in this in the study. Yeah, understand. It, 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 this if you do enough comparisons, you'll find one that's elevated. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. When you go and by the time you get down to the to these rare markers, it really does become a bit of a fishing expedition. I think that yeah. you know something smelled about right with the D dimer, and there might be something there with the D dimer, but it's just not something that's that's good medicine to be. It's not straightforward anyway. Yeah, but but as far as you know, as far as, I, didn't, I don't know if I answered the TPO question. The TPO question was also one that's interesting because there are anti-inflammatory effects that TPO can be modulated under. Um, uh, it can go up and down in, in, in the ways that uh, uh, other acute phase reactants can go. And so I, I'm not convinced the TPO finding is 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 relevant. But nonetheless, people okay. want to associate it because of the platelets and the story around Jack too. But yeah, it, the platelets didn't make sense it, to me. Yeah. Yeah. And factor five laden wasn't helpful. Prothrombin wasn't helpful. Jack two mutations weren't helpful. Any cardiolipin wasn't helpful. Yeah, um, those lipoprotein didn't wasn't helpful. Yeah, those those were pretty rare. We you know we we went down and we looked really 
quite hard. So the with regard to the factor five Leiden and the prothrombin mutations, we did see an increased incidence of VTE from uh, for carriers compared to non-carriers, but the risk uh, did not vary significantly across the treatment arms. And if you took these patients out, the uh, the findings for the higher dose DOFA were still present. So it really didn't explain everything. It you know it clearly is relevant. If someone comes in with a clot, you can measure it like you do in any but that really is not an explanation. With regards to the autoantibodies we looked, they were quite rare uh, and really quite uninformative. I don't think uh, they're of much value when you're looking at a patient uh, with, say, rheumatoid arthritis to be looking, looking for it. But we looked, and, uh, you know, it was a lot of work, um, rare events uh, that, to, to see these some of these changes, and they were, they were consistent across all the groups, not, not really seen with for example, with the higher dose of tobacitinib, which is and, where we saw. And to be fair, the five milligram BD dose, correct me if I'm wrong, there was no statistically significant difference. There was a numerical difference. Yeah, the five milligram dose definitely um, was less. It was, it was, there were fewer events in the five milligram dose and um, the, the hazard ratio. So I think they were, they didn't separate in the same way, this is again, as I said, will be coming out in much greater detail with regards to um, the the overall uh, study, where they really get into slicing and dicing the different um, demographic and baseline disease characteristics to, to try to tie together a more clinically relevant. And, and even the event rate was not as high as people have seen in various registries. There was just this subtle difference between the two arms. Yeah, I think you're raising an important point um, with regards to what people have previously seen. We 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 um, we did a fairly extensive analysis uh, at, at Pfizer. The paper, I think, the paper came out in 2020. Philip Meese was the first author, where we looked at the VT risk across, across all your diseases. All Rheumatoid, uh, the PSA program, PSA, you know, PSA. program, which was not, which ultimately didn't get, uh, didn't get taken all the way to approval, and didn't really didn't see much. Then they also did much more extensive breakdowns of, of looking at and trying to enrich into a population. So that this this uh, oral surveillance study, as you know, was enriched in patients who were at uh, higher risk for cardiovascular events. They had to be over fifty and have at least one risk factor. So they did that by breaking down all of the um, prior data across the programs and did not see, even though there might have been an increased overall number, there wasn't a statistical separation. So I think that um, it, it, it's it's an interesting thought. Uh, and I think there's more, more to come here with regards to um, exactly what is going on mechanistically. But the prior evidence from our internal program, and as well as these um, these other real-world data bases did not show uh, any clear uh, evidence of an increased risk uh, with tofacitinib uh, or to jack inhibitors, as far as I could understand, um, uh, as far as increasing the risk for VT with the uh, DVT. I may have missed it, but I've never seen the Atanasep data. Is it the same as the Adalimumab data? You mean comparing with in-oral surveillance Atanasep versus yeah. Adalimumab? I'll be honest yeah. with you. I don't know those data. What 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 I do recall, and, and I'm sorry, I'm sort of jumping around here, but the the rates of um, 
the rates of VTE, when we first got wind of the signal, we spent a lot of time um, pouring through our own data, but also at the same time, there was another similar study, which which came out for tocilizumab, uh, the Intract study, similar overall yeah. design, post-approval study. At higher and, rates than in this study with that, with that trial. That's exactly right. So the rates were different for TNF inhibitors are very low. I think they were very low for the IL-65 recall corrective that the number of PEs was strikingly low. But again, uh, differences between TNFs between the two studies were not the same. And it just sort of goes to show that sometimes big studies uh, give just, you know, disparate uh, 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 answers. So there's a very nice conclusion in your paper that you analyzed 291 protein biomarkers and three genetic markers, and you couldn't identify a clear mechanistic explanation for any difference in rates. The D-dimer was associated with risk but goes up with inflammation and should not be used as a, as a marker to follow over time. And, and, the, and the, after exhaustive effect, attempts, we still don't understand the mechanism. What about in your mind? Is it a Jack 2 effect or is it a class effect? Boy, so so I'll tell you, I, I honestly don't know. I know that so 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 for we know that Jack 2's died of platelets and and I thought you were gonna ask me what else would I what other additional uh, research might be interesting. I think understanding the that's, role that's the next question. That's the next question, David. What where are you going next? I'll jump to that one and then come back to your first question. <laughs> try to dance around your answer because I, <laughs> or maybe I will dance. But the, you know, to, to understanding the role of Jack two and platelets specifically to me is a big black box. I don't I don't think we really understand it. And Jack two also is broadly expressed across other different cells. But I don't think we fully appreciate Jack biology. I think there's a lot more to be discovered. As I mentioned earlier, there was a um, more than fifty different pathways. They're expressed. Um, uh, throughout the body, and I, I think there's a lot more research to come. In terms of JAK2 versus the other JAKs, I mean, we know JAK1 is very broadly expressed and has um, quite a big impact. I, I, I think it'd be very hard for me to say, I think this is a JAK1-driven effect, but we just don't know uh, mechanistically uh, what's driving this. Um, and and JAK2, as I said, the FDA certainly believed it was the major uh, mechanism behind the platelet changes, and I believe that, but is it the major driver behind the clots? I, if I were a betting man, I'd probably say Jack 2, but do I feel confident about that? No. Um, so I, I, short answer is I, I don't know. So we're waiting for the RA Bridge and Branch studies to come out on baricitinib. We can look at the Salinas paper um, published in Rheumatology and Therapy 2022. And it showed that the hazard, the the risk, 1.51 statistically significantly elevated for Barry versus the TNFs, but it meant that if every thousand patients treated with Barry instead of a TNF, you get three extra VTEs a year. So even though the risk is elevated, it's not wildly increased. But we will look for the branch and bridge. So what future research do you plan? I'm looking forward to that uh, paper that you're talking about and um, any take-home messages for the clinician. 
Yeah, so to be honest with you, Peter, the we we don't currently have much ongoing active research to address mechanistically some of these questions. We have a number of of external academic collaborations where uh, we're keen to see some of the results, but internally we're not we're not doing a lot to to, to further address this question. Um, I, I as I mentioned, I'm, I'm I, I definitely would like to hear more with regards to, to the role uh, of, of Jack Sigmund platelets and perhaps in endothelium. Um, and and I, I think there's definitely more to come um, with regards to this story as far as VTE. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's exciting times and I think there's reason to be excited. I think you point out impressively the, that the, the risk is, 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 is statistically there, but it's still relatively, it's still relatively small. And so in terms of the advice to clinicians to sort of go back to some of the things I said earlier, which is look at the patient, talk to the patient. Uh, I would not jump to do more tests to get a D-dimer, as I've already said. I, I don't think that's of much value. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the new labeling sort of provides some guidance as to the sorts of patients you need to be um, a little bit more uh, focused on. You know, if, if they're over the age of 65, they told you they, they you know, they, they got a pack of cigarettes in their chest pocket. Um, and, uh, and if they've got a high BMI, that's something for you to think about when you're making an individual decision about whether to continue or start a, uh, a patient on a, on a jacket. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's going to be, it's going to be a continued debate. Is this, is this a class effect? Is this Jack too? And I think there's more to come to the story. So I think it's vitally important that you've tried to help us understand the mechanism of action with this study. And I congratulate you for doing it. Um, this is the first one I've seen that's even attempted to give us a mechanistic approach because rheumatologists assess benefit and risk on a daily basis with people with every comorbidity who'd never get them into a trial. Malignancy last year, infection, infected prostheses, everything you can imagine we have to cope with daily. And we do weigh up risk and benefit and, and make appropriate choice for our patients. But we love to understand the mechanistic background if we can. That's why the study is so important. And I congratulate you for doing it because yep. it was just not available, any of the data. And I couldn't understand why people weren't interested in trying to understand and help us with prediction factors who to avoid and who to give it to. So I think it's important. We look forward for RA Branch and RA Bridge, and we look forward to thinking a little bit more about platelets and TPO and, and uh, our risk factors in our patients, which seem to be age, weight, smoking, and a history of VTE. So I thank you very much for your time, David. We greatly appreciate it, and thanks for talking to us. Now, if you'd like to know more about this paper, please read it for yourself because it's very clear and, and very concise and nicely written. It's uploaded to the CSF website. You can get detailed slide sets available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media that you do use and let us know with some feedback um, what you think. So thank you so much, David. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Peter. I look forward to seeing you in San Diego. Yep. See you in San Diego. All the best. Thank you.